Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson today with episode number 212 and The Drill Down is going to war. Well, we're not really going to war, but let's look at, for example, a defense contractor, Air Environment, using the Russian invasion of Ukraine to show off what it can do and it's working. And Oshkosh loses out on a major army contract. What's next? And Compass Diversified CEO Elias Sabo, great interview in my opinion, takes a tells us about the he's using a private equity model as a public company, looking to spin off a lot of IPOs, including a military-inspired clothing company. But before we get to that, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind some stocks and move. Joining me as always, executive producer Isaac Webster. Isaac? Corey, how are you doing? How's summer treating you so far? Uh, I'm on the East Coast, and it's warm, and it's humid, and I'm kind of digging it. Oh, nice. You're not missing San Francisco's weather? No June gloom. You can keep California for now. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Well, I want to focus on, uh, you know, the news of the week surely is is what's been going on in, in Russia. Did something in happen in Russia? What's going on? It did. And I thought it was interesting to see the effect of what's going on, the war in Ukraine and a number of companies First of which, a company that reported earnings this week, Aerovironment. Aerovironment uh, trades under AVAV, and uh, Aerovironment shares have risen 13% since the start of 2023 and have gained almost 16% in a year. Talk to us about AVAV. So uh, Aerovironment is a company that makes drones, and they make drones of all sorts of different types and have really uh, changed their product line to uh, make products that are useful to uh, the Ukrainian army in particular. And they're having some great success, and they're having some great success selling those things beyond Ukraine. They reported a quarter uh, with revenue up 40% year over year to $186 million. So not a huge company, but still, uh, 40% gain year over year is pretty good. Profits of $46 million, up uh, uh, about 60%. Uh, there was adjusted profits. There was a one-time uh, goodwill impairment when they had a, a program that they had thought was going to be a big deal and wasn't. They had to write it off. But nonetheless... More profits, adjusted profits, a lot more revenues of funding backlog of $424 million. So these guys just can't make stuff fast enough. Uh, they're on top on track, they say, for top line 20% growth for the 2024 fiscal year. And uh, this really is about that Russian invasion of Ukraine and the resulting wars given uh, arms dealers like Air Environment a chance to show off what they can do. These guys, um, you know, Wars, hell, and 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 gruesome and awful, and killing people and having machines that kill people are awful. That said, the technology behind this stuff is kind of cool until you think about what it actually does to humans. But uh, Air Environment talked about how a lot of their products, like these hand-mounted uh, grenade uh, drones, where a soldier can carry a a twenty-pound pack and uh, sort of launch a drone that's got a, that can hover or get close to a target quite far away. Uh, to drop a small bomb and to disable a tank or something. What do you mean by hand-mounted? Right. What does that mean? So they, it, they uh, some of the bigger ones, the Switchblade 600, I think, is the model that looks like a rocket-propelled uh, grenade launcher. Okay. But what it launches is a drone ah. that, that can cover miles, hover over a tank, wait till something comes out of the woods or whatever, and then drop its payload. Gotcha. So really interesting stuff. And they're talking about 
how they're seeing orders not just from Ukraine, but from uh, allied countries, countries allied with the United States, that they're now able to sell into. Here is the AeroVironment CEO. We have uh, orders so far that we have booked from four allied countries uh, 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 to date. Uh, however, the list, you're right, has grown. The list of countries that the U.S. DOD and the State Department has given us an approval uh, to market and uh, eventually sell to uh, basically more than doubled from 20 before last year to uh, close to 50 countries now. Uh, we're actively involved. So, th so that by, by itself is a very large increase, and it shows, A, that there are lots of countries that are uh, in need of this, and they would like to have this capability, and B, our track record and performance in Ukraine uh, and with the U.S. military has demonstrated the capability and the value of this system. And so USCOG has been very encouraging and positive in supporting us to increase that list to 50 countries. So that was Wahid Nawabi, the CEO of Air Environment. And it's, uh, it's interesting that the, the sort of technological gains is allowing them to show off um, their work and their equipment. Um, and, you know, like I said, if it wasn't used for killing people, it'd be pretty gee whiz neato technology. I got to admit, just the idea of looking up and seeing this hovering grenade launcher that you didn't realize was, was there must be frightening. Yeah. Just like it's it's uh, it's a horrible situation, yeah. but let's hope it brings peace to uh, Ukraine and Russia faster. Um because uh, it's it's you know it's what's been going on there. It's just it's amazing, but just from a pure economic standpoint, it's interesting to see what's happening to all the different companies. Some of which we'll describe right next. Corey, what is your next drill down? Friend of the show, Oshkosh. Remember we had these guys on a while back. Of course I do. Oshkosh uh, trades under OSK, and uh, Oshkosh shares have dropped by over six percent since the start of 2023 and have lost just over 1.5% in a year, roughly flat over 12 months. So what's what's going on with Oshkosh? So this is a company with two big businesses. One is a military business uh, making uh, uh, vehicles for different parts of the U.S. military and others. Uh, and the other one is making fire trucks and school buses. Uh, really interesting business, not the uh, clothing line, uh, but interesting company. Um, we had a great interview with these guys more than a year ago now, uh, a new CEO mm -hmm. um, and a fascinating business. But they have been struggling getting army contracts. And indeed, on Monday, the army said it had narrowed the number of contenders to build the replacement for the Bradley fighting vehicle, uh, which we've been reading a lot about the Bradley fighting vehicles in the last week. Um, Ukraine has, has been putting these things, some of the heavy machinery that Ukraine has been putting to work and having difficulty with um, uh, in Ukraine. Well, uh, the next Bradley fighting vehicle will not be made by Oshkosh. It's going to be made by either General Dynamics or Rhine Metal AG, the American unit of that German company. Um, those companies uh, received an award from the Army of a total of $1.6 billion to create some detailed designs and to build some prototypes of the next uh, medium-sized tank, those Bradley fighting vehicles. I've actually abandoned a Bradley fighting vehicle. Um, uh, and I'll tell you, they aren't made for six-foot-five guys. But um, <laughs> a very versatile uh, 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 core, core competency of the U.S. military. And Oshkosh is left out of this deal. And it's not their first blow. Uh, in recent months, Oshkosh Defense uh, built more than twenty thousand of the uh, the JLTVs, the these uh, these light vehicles for the army, um, when they were awarded a contract to build those in two thousand fifteen. But the new JLTV contract, uh, almost ten billion dollars, went to a competitor, 
a company called AM General owned by a private equity firm back in February. So they lose out in the JLTV. They lose out in the replacement for the Bradley fighting vehicle. And it, not that they were completely counting on these things and they weren't baked in, but the conversations at Oshkosh in recent uh, months haven't been about we might get these contracts, they might not. It was more about do we have enough factory space to build these things? Are we also going to have to use our space with a Pierce Manufacturing, with their, their fire and rescue equipment and truck business. Have they got the possibility of that? But they're not getting these contracts. And so I wanted you to hear how different the conversation was only a few months ago with Oshkosh CFO Michael Pack talking about maybe they had enough room to get all these contracts that, oh, yeah, they ended up not getting. Ugh. Here's Michael Pack. Yeah, I think we're looking at it not just as we're looking at it as a company in total. So I think there's certainly programs, adjacent programs like MCWS, there's programs like the robot, robotic combat vehicle that were in the competition for OMFB and so on. Um, you know, we'll continue to look at those programs and pursue some of those adjacencies. And we've had, again, some nice adjacent wins. Um, but I think, you know, first of all, with the, we have the changeover in Jefferson City, Tennessee. So that's a piece of it. They were certainly building um, component componentry for defense um, uh, for the JLTVs. So that's that's really that facility is being consumed. Then we have about a 350,000 square foot facility um, in Oshkosh. And if you think about the capacity needs that we've had as a business over time and some of the ads I just went through a few minutes ago, um, that's not a large facility for us to um, to very productively redeploy. So I think we have a lot of options that we're going to continue to um, continue to explore and and certainly um, you know there's a great workforce there and and um, we have the ability to uh, to certainly leverage those uh, um, you know Pierce is right up the road um, in in that uh, um, in that in that Wisconsin area that that we're located so we see a lot of opportunities there um, and and we don't see by the time we get to 2025 that um, we'll have a fixed cost drag that we're that we're dealing with at that point. So he sees a lot of opportunities to spread manufacturing across multiple plants. The problem is they're just not getting those contracts to get that done. That is rough. All right. Well, coming up next, uh, a company called Compass Diversified, uh, Elias Sabo. This is, uh, I think, one of the really more fun interviews we've done in a very long time. And it's a fascinating company. It's kind of private equity. It's kind of some interesting products, of course. It's also a public company uh, and, a, and an absolutely fascinating CEO um, who, among other things, doesn't look or sound like your typical CEO. Elias Sabo joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we're joined right now by Elias Sabo, the CEO of Compass Diversified and Elias um, as I started to read your SEC filings and prepare for this interview, I thought this is going to be one of the weirdest companies I've ever looked at, ever. Because the age of conglomerates, this was a thing in the 60s and 70s. You had companies like ITT and, and others that just acquired companies because they looked like good companies or good fits or was it someone got hammered in the bar next to an investment banker and walked out of there owning a business. But you have 11 really weird businesses under one roof. Uh, which gives us the diversified aspect of uh, of Compass Diversified. You probably describe your company differently. Yeah, we do. And thank you, Corey, for having me on. Good morning. Um, you know, and 
Today we have 10 businesses because we did sell one of our companies recently. Um, But, you know, you're right. In some cases, and what is confusing about our company, especially as a publicly traded company, is people broadly say, well, you're a conglomerate. And that was something that, you know, was big 20, 30 years ago. There's a conglomerate discount that should happen. And, you know, our retort, and it's a big challenge that we have in the public markets, is that our company is set up to to essentially um, implement a model that has been reserved for private equity investors. And so what is very different than the historical conglomerate is the size of companies that we're buying, which are lower middle market size companies, and our propensity to sell those companies once they've been improved. So, you know, we would position ourselves very differently. We would say we are like a private equity investment manager, but using permanent capital to execute the strategy. And there are significant advantages versus the traditional private equity industry that we're able to gain by having a publicly traded stock and permanent capital. Well, and I and I usually, if we talk about stock at all on this on this show, I usually save that for late in the show to say, you know. But but I, I do. Why is your company public? I mean, you 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 you've got some capital, you've got some access to bank debt. You come into these companies, you buy them, you turn them around, and you jettison them usually. Um, wh- why be public at all? Yeah. So one of the things, Corey, we believed in, if I went back in history of our firm, just to, you know, kind of set the stage, we initially started this strategy for a family office. It was a charitable foundation um, and they were looking to build out an alternative asset strategy. Over the eight years that we did this as a private entity for a family office, what we came to realize is there are a number of moral hazards that exist in the traditional private equity industry, most of which center around the short timeframes under which you have to invest and which you have to divest a company. We didn't believe that was the right capital that is required for these smaller emerging companies. A lot of these companies are gonna develop into the next great companies. I'll give you an example. We owned a business called Fox Factory. It is the premier maker of suspension parts that goes on mountain bikes all the way to the Ford Raptor. We bought that company from Bob Fox, an individual who was looking for someone to partner. We owned 80% of the company. He owned 20. Over the series of years, we ended up owning that business for about six years as a private company under our public shell. And then we took that company public and we held it for another five years That business has now grown from an $80 million original purchase price to a $5 billion enterprise value company. It was the patient capital that we were able to provide to that company that allowed us to build a management team, to put the infrastructure in place. You know, some of these things are really time consuming and these smaller entrepreneurial companies need the benefit of time. The traditional private equity industry, for all the value that it has created for shareholders, is not set up, in our opinion, in order to maximize the longer term value creation and the potential of these companies in what they can do in growing employment, becoming you know even bigger market share leaders in their space, benefiting their communities. We believe our model is socially more acceptable to provide capital to middle market companies, these smaller businesses. So you look at it as, as, just, as building rather than building rather than turn and burn, basically. A hundred percent. We're not asset traders. We're builders and you need permanent capital to be able to be a builder that you partner with your management teams in order to grow these companies to their full potential. Yeah. And it's, so what is the moral hazard you're referring to there? 
the the most common moral hazard, uh, if if I've rarely heard it defined as such, but uh, in private equity is often uh, uh, big layoffs, throwing a ton of debt in these companies, uh, spitting out a, a business that is is has got real big debt risks, uh, but maybe is a little bit leaner and meaner, uh, and and literally leaner and literally meaner. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, but maybe functioning a little bit better, but again, with massive debt uh, and, and often poised to collapse again. So I think there's a few moral hazards that exist in the traditional private equity investment space. First is you only have a certain amount of time to invest. And as I've always said, if I gave my kids $20 and said, you only have 10 minutes to go spend it all in a candy store, they'll come out with $20 of candy. But that may not be the candy that optimizes what they would like over time. If I said you have a dollar to spend over 20 days, they're probably going to more optimize the way that they spend their money. And so the short time frame requires general partners in the space to put capital to work, regardless of whether the opportunity is it as as good as they would like. On the other side, because these companies are incented in the way that the general partner goes and raises more capital is to put up big exits, very contrary to what you would do if you're a public stock investor, you generally sell your winners quickest because you wanna put up big wins, you go out and you raise more money. I don't know, and I would actually say, not only do I not know, I think that is probably the wrong strategy to maximize long-term gain for your limited partners. So, you know, we talk about moral hazard when respect to the decisions that the GP has to make relative to the LPs, but you're also getting to a great point, which is if you are fundamentally up leveraging each of the in individual portfolio companies that you have, which is how private equity makes money being more of a trader, then you are going to impair that company's ability to ultimately reach, you know, its full potential. Our financing strategy is very different. We only finance at the holding company. We only have intercompany debt down at our subsidiary companies, so they're never overburdened with leverage. And as a result of that, you know, we can invest in our company's long-term health. And if something goes wrong, you know, give you a perfect example, Toys R Us, a business we all grew up with, and we all loved having, you know, kind of that retail distribution of kids' toys. That was a deal that was done by one of the largest PE firms, they did a dividend recap to get all of their money out, ended up benefiting their LPs, benefited themselves through the carry that they got because they got more than all their money out. And they put too much leverage on the business through the dividend recap and then they bankrupted it. Well, what happens to all the communities that these you know places operated? What about all the rank and file employees that never benefited from any of that dividend recap? that went all to the partners. There's asymmetric risk versus return. That well, you is missed your chance for the, for the Simpsons that. line. Oh, what about the children? What about the, the Simpsons? would have loved that. Hey, <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't want to go through all of the 10 companies that you've got um, uh, in yeah. the interest of time, but I, I, I thought maybe we could you pick out one or two to show just how diversified this portfolio is. And you have some under this sort of concept of, of total branded consumer um, which we can get to in a second, but uh, explain uh, for our listeners, what does, uh, I don't know, uh, Marucci do? Yeah, so Marucci is the leader in baseball bats. If you're a baseball fan, about 55, 60% of all major league baseball players swing one of the two brands that we own, Marucci or Victus Bats. As a result of that, that creates a huge inspirational pull for all of the youth sports that are out there. So everything from college all the way down to little league baseball that's being played, 
what these kids are looking for to, you know, to sway their purchase decision is what is their favorite Major League Baseball player swing? And so we have a full line of aluminum and composite bats that go in all of the different youth and college leagues. And principally, we make most of our money selling aluminum bats and wood bats to major leaguers. But we've also been able to branch out now into softball bats, into baseball gloves, into fielding gloves, into team apparel. So it's broadly now a, you know, kind of merchandise for the hard good merchandise for the baseball industry, but really makes most of its money in the aluminum and composite bat side. And this is a business you've, you've seen about 50% revenue growth year over year um, that's doing about, call it $150 million. What was the, what was it that you needed to turn around when you acquired that business, which was not too long ago? Yes. So there wasn't really a turnaround per se, but it was owned by a diverse group of investors, including a lot of major league baseball players. And our CEO, who is absolutely phenomenal, Kurt Ainsworth, he himself is an ex-major league baseball pitcher. I mean, the irony of running a bat company when you were a pitcher. Well, that's why you're not lost He the, pitched for the Angels, yeah, didn't right? he? He pitched for the Giants, up by you. Oh, well, he was one of our guys. I'm sorry. I've, 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 we got to edit that yeah, out. It's fucking also, embarrassing. I'm a, I'm a he's, briefly. A, he's a gold medal Olympian as well. And so very accomplished in baseball, then went to run this business. But the ownership group was so fragmented that it was really dysfunctional. And being able to have an ownership group that came in that owned the majority of the company, Kurt and his team own a minority, you know, interest position in the business along with us, allowed us to make capital allocation and business decisions for that company that really was able to accelerate our growth. Now, I want to point out, and this was something that was really big for us, we bought this company in May of 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic when all sports were shut down. So yeah. youth sports had no demand for this product. And we had signed an agreement earlier in the year before COVID had shut down the U.S. to purchase this. We stood by our commitment. We bought this, this business. And as I would say to investors, we're going to have a year that really stinks in our first year. And nobody wants to hear that when you just spent $200 million on a business, but you have to trust us. This is a great business. We don't see these come along often. And if we were to break our contract, we would never have an opportunity to buy a business, this business or businesses like it because our reputation would be tarnished. Today, this company is now has over $40 million of LTM EBITDA. You know, think about that three years later, and our purchase price multiple is in it five times, we are going to make a ton of money for our shareholders on this. But it was, you know, because we were willing to take the risk and we had financing available to us at the holding company, our peers in private equity would not have been able to finance this because the debt market's closed. But our strategy allowed us to do it. And this is going to be, you know, an exceptional investment for us and really a home run within our portfolio. I see what you're doing there. Home run. I got it. So uh, like uh, another one, uh, 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 511, you call it 511? 511, Yeah. So what is 511? Yeah, so 511 historically grew up as the standard issue pant for the FBI, CIA, and other first responders. It is technical soft goods that allow our first responders to do what they need to do in the field. When we acquired the business in 2016, they were principally a professional business. But we believe that there was, yet again, 
an aspirational component to this business because they were serving the most elite of the communities where um, you had first responders. And so we built out a consumer line. Today, that business has north of 50% of its revenue in consumer. You and I can see each other. This shirt is actually a 511. I'm wearing 511 jeans as well right now. It's incredibly comfortable, very durable, flexible, you know, kind of um, kind of sport wear in, in the consumer business. And it's been growing double digits per year, principally through the consumer efforts that we've been leading. Uh, and, and it's a big business. So you're doing 475 million in revenue. Yeah, it's a large business. They make around $70 million of EBITDA, which is generally how we quote our businesses. We did file the Take That Company public. By the time we got cleared, it was in November of 2021, just as the markets were really starting to soften with, you know, kind of Fed policy change. Right, right. And so we pulled that and we held that out. This will be a public company. We've told the street when markets start to heal and IPOs become back in vogue, this is a company because of its growth in consumer, which in the U.S. were, you know, only about 100 stores out of a potential of four to 500 stores. These are retail stores, you know, kind of part of our omni-channel where we have both wholesale, retail outlets, and our e-com, including Amazon, where we run it through 3P. So it's a full omni-channel effort. It's growing very rapidly. It deserves to be a public company when the public markets heal. But yeah, it's a large business and it's got yeah. a huge you know, market opportunity. And they're unquestionably the leader in sort of, you know, this more rugged, tactical, you know, kind of durable gear. So uh, interesting random brands. Uh, uh, if, I can, if I'm not, I don't mean to be insulting by saying they're random, but they, 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 it's like, so what pulls them together? What, if, what does a company you acquire have to look like? I'm sure all of our listeners are thinking right now, they know a private that they want to bring to you and sell to you. But what what, what, hope, what is, is going to look I like? I hope so, because we're always looking. I'm sure. <laughs> but, you know, the, one, the thing that you're going to find is we always are trying to define what is the economic moat and the reason to exist for this business and how strong are, are its competitive forces and are we able to deepen that economic moat under our ownership. So when it comes to branded consumer, what we really love is enthusiast brands. These are smaller brands that have people that really love the brand, but probably don't have as much knowledge about the brand, right? You could have, you know, you could take a company like General Motors. Everybody knows the brand, right? But how does it score in terms of affinity to the brand? What we like are brands that probably have a much more defined niche market. They're much smaller right now, but they have a huge affinity from their customer base. And we think those are the businesses where the brand is bigger than its financial profile are the great opportunities for us to be able to invest in because then we can put money with what we call the point of attack, research and development on new product introduction and sales and marketing to really drive, you know, what is a core aspirational brand. And if you went across all seven of our consumer businesses, all of them would have this enthusiast aspirational brand to them. So let me ask you finally, um, uh, you are too much great surprise when we logged in and could see each other and our listeners can't see you. You're jacked, dude. You've, you've probably been in the gym maybe even today. Um, and I, I wonder, this morning. <laughs> see, you know, yeah, um, uh, I won't, I won't do you the disservice of describing to our listeners what you look like, but you look like you've been lifting a lot of weights for a long time. And I wonder how your um, experience as an athlete informs the work that you do because your company looks different. 
And and you yep. also look uh, more fit than the average American. Uh, God bless you. Um, uh, I'm trying to do the same. But I, I, I wonder how that informs the work that you do and the companies that you acquire and how you look at opportunities. Yeah. So a couple of things, my, you know, I'd say my two I mean, passions. I'm going to left are, field from that, but yeah. Yeah, no, a little bit is, you know, I love working out and I also love racing cars and I drive professionally in a race series. And so believe it or not, you need to be really physically fit to endure what you deal with in those cars. I think in both cases, Corey, in what really shapes, you know, kind of my investment philosophy as well as my managerial style is, you know, there's going to, you have to be able to grind through tough times. And, you know, a lot of this is about being resilient. You know, things are going to happen. You're never going to, you know, hit every corner exactly right, but can you put it out of your mind and can you focus forward on that next corner and just do what is within your control? And I would say, you know, always looking forward, not hanging in the past with mistakes that have been made, but how are we going to advance the ball going forward and really forgetting about, you know, things that have happened in the past, I think is the way that people really perform to their utmost. And since you mentioned, you know, the fact that I like to work out, I will say, you know, one of the things that we did through COVID, it's been a great enhancement to our business. And I believe this in a leadership style is we went to a much more, you know, flexible work culture. You don't need to work in the office on a daily basis, but we like to have our people come in because there's a lot of culture that can get built that way. There's a lot of idea generation. So what we did is we moved into new space. We built in a gym. I've got a 4,000 square foot gym. I have a personal trainer who comes in to work with our staff and to get them more comfortable with the gym. We put in a full-blown kitchen with a professional chef who creates healthy meals for my staff and they don't have to go out. And everything that we do is about how do we enhance the physical, the mental, the emotional being of our employees. And my view has always been, if I have to hire an employee and look over their shoulder, then I hired the wrong person. I'm hiring really top people from great business schools, and we give them the flexibility to succeed in the way that we want to. And then we demonstrate to them how much we care through our efforts around their physical and mental well-being. You know, and you can see that with the gym. You can see it with, you know, kind of when you come into our office, the, you know, kitchen that we have in the entertainment lounge, a lot of yeah. the living plants that we have. We have a physical therapist on staff. So we put a lot of money into our employees' health and wellness. And we think happy employees ultimately are the most productive employees. Well, it sounds like workouts around the clock, both in terms of the balance sheets and, and the biceps. Uh, Compass Diversified CEO Elias Sabo, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank uh, you, Corey. All right. Coming up next on the Drill Down the Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Compass Diversified right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And if you are listening to us on Stitcher, great podcast platform that's going away. So make sure you choose the podcast platform of your choice, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever. But Stitcher's going away. If you're subscribing to us on Stitcher, why don't you subscribe to us on Apple iTunes or on Spotify or both? You can listen to us on, on, on Spotify. You can listen to us at 300% normal speed. iTunes, 200% normal speed. Very exciting to hear me sound like a chipmunk. 
So check us out on iTunes. Check us out on Spotify. Check us out somewhere else because Stitcher is going away. All right, we are back with the bite. The one number that tells us a whole lot about Compass Diversified. And Isaac, as you and I were talking uh, during the break, that was just one of our favorite interviews. Um, it was good, you know, for change. But <laughs> not change the bite, <laughs> Compass Diversified. Uh, so this company, uh, they, as you've heard, bills themselves a publicly traded evolution from a private equity company. Mm-hmm. They have done a lot of acquisitions since uh, coming into existence in 1998. This company has done $7 billion in acquisitions of companies since 1998. And they put another $3.3 into those acquired companies. But they've had some nice spinoffs in the meantime. And as you heard, Isaac, getting ready to do some more. So there's your number, $7 billion. That's how much of this company has spent acquiring other businesses to spin up and spin out. It was just what the, my favorite part about this interview with Elias was just hearing him talk about the companies that he's investing in. I mean, I don't know if it's, you know, he's obviously been trained very well, but he's, he, his passion comes through and absolutely. his passion comes no, through. Absolutely. And I was, if you needed somebody to buy your company, you want someone that have that passion about what you're doing. Yeah. And we didn't get into it, but he has a really interesting pay package, uh, a, a big one over there, given the size of the company. He, he, he has a, a sort of a separate uh, paraphrasing from the SEC filings, but essentially a separate company that, that he works for that gets paid. And so the so Compass Diversified pays the separate company mm. uh, for his management of Compass Diversified. He's not actually an employee of Compass Diversified. It's very odd. It, it means he gets paid like a private equity manager big time. Um, but, uh, you know, you put up the results. Well, there are tax benefits for that type of pay structure. Surely. Right, you've been listening to Drill Down Podcast. We are glad to have you. Thank you for your time. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. I'm Corey Johnson. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire. And the Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.